if God is for us, who in this world or the world to come can be against us? Thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you for the opportunity we've had already to give you worship as we sing, as we open up your word and turn our attention to what you've written for us. I pray that you would speak to us through your spirit, challenge us, convict us, and I pray that you would change us. In the good name of Jesus, I pray it. Amen. Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and join me in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. I want to share a message with you uh, this morning that I've titled The Originals. I was going to title it the OGs, but I thought I might have to explain that to about at least half of you, what that means. And I thought just for time's sake, we just go with the originals as we uh, continue our look through the book of Acts. You know, Uh, The meanings of words change over time. Uh, My grandfather went to be with the Lord about 30 years ago. My grandmother went to be with the Lord about 20, 21 years ago. So for the last two decades, at least, both of my grandparents have been with the Lord. But I want want you to imagine, though, that, that if I were to be able to, like, give them a call. If there was a phone in heaven, there's not, so never put a Facebook post about a phone in heaven. Just dig me off, all right? But let's say there is a, there's a telephone in heaven, I were to, and I were to call up my grandparents and say, hey, I want to tell you about my day today. My cell is messing up because it's getting a bunch of spam emails, so I'm going to go to the Apple store and then tweet about it later. Now, to them, they would look at me like I had lost my ever-loving mind. Because you see, in, they don't understand, when they, they hear the word cell, they're thinking about cells that make the body. There's no way they're thinking about a cellular phone. If I were to say spam, 25, 30 years ago, spam was a lunch, well, it's never really been a lunch meat by definition, but it was considered a lunch meat, and unless you wanted to get real fancy and fry it and cut little slices in it, and it was dinner at that point, that is what they would define as spam, not unwanted uh, emails. They wouldn't even know what an email is about. They would, they would wonder why an E is coming through the mail. Uh, they, they, they would be confused by that, and if, if I told them I was going to the Apple store, they would say, well, you, you dummy, there's a tree right in the yard. You can't go to the store to get an apple. There's a tree right here. Because, see, words change that the meaning tends to change over time. There is another word that has changed greatly, drastically, since it was first used. And that word is Christian. The word Christian has changed dramatically since it was first used a few thousand years ago. How the word is used today is much different than how it was used in the book of Acts, which we will see this morning. In fact, if you were to ask someone, what is a Christian or who is a Christian, what does that word mean, you would get multiple answers. Uh, Some of those might be correct, Uh, some of those may be close to correct, and most definitely some of those would be way off from being correct. Some people would frame the answer to that question 
question by focusing on what a person believes. Some people would answer that question purely based upon what a person does. For some people, they would answer that question by tying it to something like church attendance. Other people would tie that definition not so much to attending somewhere, just as long as you're trying to do something good with your life. At the end of the day, however, it doesn't really matter how we define the word. What matters is how Scripture defines the word and how Scripture describes the person who bears that title. And so this morning, to help us understand the true meaning of a Christian, we need to go back to the original meaning and the original people who embodied the meaning of it. That word Christian is found only three times in your Bible. It's found in Acts chapter 11, which we'll see in a few minutes. It's found toward the end of Acts, in Acts chapter 26. And then it's used by one of the originals, Peter, one of the OG. He uses it in his first epistle in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16. When it first began to be used, what can you understand this? It wasn't the church that used the term. It was pagans who used the term. It was unbelievers who used the term. And it was not a term of honor. To to be called a Christian was not a term of honor until the second century. Up until that point, the term Christian was used as a word of slander. It was used as a word that was to put down someone. It was used as a word to, to ruin a reputation, not to, not to build someone up or not to give it to them as a badge of honor. The term first appears in Acts chapter 11. This chapter is covering two big events. In the first part of the chapter, Simon Peter, who's one of these original followers of Jesus, Simon Peter returns to the church in Jerusalem, and he says, Hey, y'all, I went to the house of a man named Cornelius, and I shared with him the gospel and his family, and I, with the gospel, and I want to give you a report of what I shared with them and of what happened to them. So the first part of Acts chapter 11 is kind of a recap of what happened in Acts chapter 10. The last part of the chapter focuses on a group of people. If you recall back in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7, there's a follower of Jesus by the name of Stephen. And Stephen was killed because of his faith. And when he was killed because of his faith, a big wave of persecution came upon the church. And when that wave of persecution came upon the church, the believers, some of the believers in that one church in Jerusalem, they fled. They left the area carrying the gospel with them. They went to various cities. One of those cities was Antioch. The last part of chapter 11 talks about how they left that area, went to Antioch, and what they did there in both situations. We're going to read in this chapter about some of the first and original followers of Jesus. Notice how the chapter starts. Acts chapter 11 verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout 
Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, the Jews, criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men, Gentiles, and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order. I was in this city of Joppa praying. In a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was thrown up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. This should all sound familiar from what we read last week in Acts chapter 10. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he'd seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that's back in chapter 6 and 7, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. As I read and reread and reread and reread this chapter this week, I, I wondered and I came to a question that I don't know that I have the exact answer to. I got a sneaking suspicion though. But I wonder, would the church, the people in the church in Acts, would they be as quick to use that word Christian as we are? I don't think they would. Because I think that they, they understood it to mean what it originally 
meant. You see, these original Christians teach us this truth. They teach us what a biblical Christian looks like. A Christian is a person who believes in Jesus and whose life reflects the life of Jesus, becoming more like him in the way that he or she serves. And Acts chapter 11 gives us three pictures of what these original Christians were all about. And in giving us these pictures, it helps us understand what it really means to be what the Bible calls a Christian. First is this. The original Christians were known for their practice. They were known for their practice. If you go back and look at what Peter says in the first half of the chapter, what he's saying when he reports to the church what happened back in Acts chapter 10, Peter is saying, look, I did not associate with Cornelius when I believed that he was unclean. But when my belief changed, my practice changed also. When God changed my belief, my actions changed also. You see, the original Christians had this in common. Their actions were impacted by their beliefs. What they did flowed out of what they believed. Belief impacted their actions. What they did was fueled by what they believed. They practiced what they believed. See, Jesus practiced this model as well. There were certain things that Jesus did, and there were certain things Jesus refused to do because of what he believed to be true in his relationship with his Father. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 5, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does also. Look, believing is important. I'm not discounting belief whatsoever. I'm not minimizing our need to believe. But belief in Jesus cannot stop at belief. That belief must impact our behavior. If what you believe doesn't impact your behavior, you don't really believe it. I believe that it is quite stupid to stand in the middle of Caroline Street. I believe with all my heart that's a bad idea. Because I've seen some of you drive. You don't know where your brake is. And some other people as well. And because of that belief, guess what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to go stand in the middle of Caroline Street. Because I believe it would lead to something quite bad. See, what you believe must impact how you behave. If it doesn't, then you really don't believe it. One of these originals, one of these first guys to follow Jesus was a man by the name of James. And I want to show you the verses being on the screen. I want to show you something James said about this reality, about being known by what you practice. James said, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God's one, you do well. Congratulations. Even the demons believe and they shudder. You see, the difference in my belief and the demons' belief is that my belief calls me to action. They just believe it. Now, now James is, is not teaching that works must be added to our faith for salvation to occur. Okay, hear me say that. He's not teaching that. Here's what he's teaching. He's teaching that the very nature of faith demands that our possession of faith be followed by our practice of faith. I'm going to repeat that. He's teaching us that our possession of faith must be followed. If it's true faith, must be followed by the practice of our faith. These original Christians professed and they possessed a faith that was living and active, that impacted their behavior. It impacted what they practiced. If your faith isn't making a difference in how you live, you haven't grabbed a hold of the right kind of faith and you haven't gotten faith in the right object because faith will always impact what you believe will always impact how you behave and these original Christians were known for their practice here's the second thing they were known for they were known for their position not just their practice but their position let me explain what I mean by that by position I mean where you stand in relation to God's desire to work let me give you a couple of examples here that we've read in chapter 11. Look at what Peter says in verse 17. Peter says, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who am I to position myself in the way of God? Peter's saying, God began to do a saving work in the lives of the Gentile, and I wasn't about to get in his way. I wasn't about to position myself in his way. Look at what it says in verses 19 and 20. It tells us in verses 19 that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. These, remember, these are people who were on the run. These are people who have fled their homeland. Now, they could have positioned themselves in the background. They could have cowered in fear. They could have tried to hide and, and never speak the name of Jesus again. They could have had a lack of faith that Jesus was going to come through, that he was worth it for them to follow him. But instead, they moved and they took the position that God had assigned them. Sometimes the reason we fail to see God move is because we are in the wrong position. We're either standing in God's way or we're not moving to where he wants to position us. I'm not saying that God isn't big enough to knock us out of the way. 
I'm not saying that God's not powerful enough to move us out of the way. But I am saying that God may very well be unwilling to do great things in us and through us if we're in the wrong position, standing in his way or refusing to be moved. How could you say something like that? Because it happened in Scripture. Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth. And he had a desire to teach them. And he had a desire to do something great in them and through them. But when he got to his hometown, the people did not believe. The people's faith was not in Jesus. The people's faith did not apply to what they thought Jesus could do. And Jesus, upon realizing that the people were not believing, they were in the wrong position, He made a statement that's one of the saddest statements in the entire Word of God. It's in Matthew 13, 58. It says that Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of whose unbelief? Okay, four people. It's on the screen. Come on. Don't y'all want to eat lunch before the afternoon football games? Whose unbelief was the problem? God's or theirs? Theirs. Because of their unbelief. Back in the day, there was this, uh, there, there was this gospel group. They were called uh, FFH, and, and they sang a song called, Lord, Move or Move Me. Oh, would that be a prayer that you and I would pray today? God, move in my life. God, move in my family. God, move in my church. God, move in my community. And God, if I am the one who's keeping you from moving, then move me. If I'm out of position, reposition me. Lord, move or move me. Have you considered your position? Are you standing in God's way? Do you refuse to be moved? The original followers of Jesus knew their position in God's kingdom. And if we're going to follow their example, we have to know our position in that kingdom as well. They were known for their practice. They're known for their position. And third is this. They were known for their pursuit. They were known for their pursuit. There was one thing in their crosshairs. There was one object of their pursuit, and it was Jesus. These originals pursued a path to become like him. They pursued their calling to follow his example. They desired to reflect him in what they said and what they did. In fact, one of those originals, Peter, put it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. This is why these original Christians were called Christians in the first place. When people saw their lives, they were reminded of Jesus. May I ask you, when people look at your life, what do you remind them of? Who do you remind them of? What do they know you? Do do, do they know that you're more passionate about politics than a savior? Do they know that you're more passionate about a team, about a a, a football team, than than the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings? When people look at you, do you remind them that that you're more passionate about anything or anyone else other than Jesus? 
The reason these disciples were called Christians was because when people looked at them, they said, those people, they love Jesus, they followed Jesus. We don't understand Jesus. We may not like Jesus, but those people, man, they are sold out to Jesus. When someone looks at your life, what will they see as your pursuit? Let me just get real practical in, in, in the last 30 minutes we'll have with you. Let me get real practical. I want to challenge you this morning to make your pursuit the same pursuit that the originals had. The scripture tells us what they were pursuing. And these are things that you can walk out of this room today and you can pursue them in your life. What did they pursue? What did they chase after? Well, according to what our text tells us, they were always prepared to share the gospel. Verse 19 says they were speaking the word. Verse 20 says they were preaching the Lord Jesus. They pursued that because that's what Jesus pursued. Jesus was constantly sharing the good news of God's kingdom. I already can hear it now. I already hear you say it. I can kind of reach your mind this morning. Some of you are going, but pastor, but pastor, that's not my gifting. I don't care if it's a gifting. It's your calling. So I have a pastor, you don't understand, that's not a personality. Mine either, but God does that and God changes that and God uses that. That's not an excuse. Say, pastor, I haven't been to seminary. You ain't got to be to seminary. See, I just used to ain't, I've been to seminary 14 years. Pastor, give me all the excuses you want to. The only reason you don't need to share Jesus is if Jesus has done nothing for you. There's that demon-possessed man that Jesus healed. Remember, he cast those demons into the pigs. First instance, the devil ham in the Bible. Remember that? And that demon-possessed man, he came to Jesus. He said, Lord, I want to come with you. Man, let's go on tour together. This is so great. This is so awesome. Wherever you go, Jesus, I want to go. But Scripture tells us that Jesus told him, no, no, no. Jesus said, don't, don't go with me. This is Mark chapter 5. Instead, she just said, go home to tell your friends, to tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. That's what sharing the gospel is about. It's about telling others what Jesus has done for us. That's what that man did. He told people what God had done for him. How long has it been since you've told somebody what Jesus has done for you? Is he your pursuit in that way? They remained faithful to the Lord. That was part of their pursuit. In verse 23, this man named Barnabas, his father of Jesus, this original Barnabas encourages the other originals to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. These original followers of Jesus were determined to remain faithful. You know why? Because their Lord remained faithful. Faithful unto death. Even death on a cross. Their Lord was the one who endured the cross, Hebrews 12 tells us, and despised its shame. How easily do you give up pursuing God? How much does it take for you to become faithless? Are you pursuing faithfulness? And they met the needs of others. Verse 29 tells us his famine occurs in the land of the days of Claudius, one of the emperors. 
And it says the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief. Why would these original followers of Jesus sacrifice their own resources to meet the needs of other people? Because that's what Jesus did. You see how he is the the focus of their lives? Everything they do, they seek to model, Jesus, are you involved in a ministry that meets the needs of others? Are you willing to sacrifice some of your own resources so that others could be resourced? That's exactly what Jesus did for us. He came to us with the gospel. He was faithful to the cross so that he could meet our deepest need. These were ways the originals proved to be Christians then, and these are ways that we can show ourselves to be Christians today. What is your practice? What is your position? And what are you pursuing? As we put a bow on it this morning, let me tell you why we can do all this. The reason we can practice those things that Jesus practiced, the reason that belief can impact our behavior is because of what Jesus did for us. The reason we can be positioned in God's kingdom is because we've been invited to be part of that kingdom. The reason we can pursue Jesus is because he first pursued us. Jesus saw my need, and my greatest need was not to have a bank account that had a certain amount in it. My greatest need was not to have a certain number of friends and followers on social media. My greatest need was not to have a good job, although I'm thankful to have one. Uh, my, my, most days, my greatest need... Uh, <laughs> My greatest need is, is, is not to have a big family, although I, I, I love my wife, my two boys, my one boy and one girl. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Sorry, Cam, I totally slipped. My greatest need is to have my sins forgiven. And Jesus met that greatest need. And if Jesus were to decide to not do anything else for me for the rest of my life. Meeting that need is enough. Have you allowed Jesus to meet that need in your life? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ today? If you don't have that relationship, I've got some wonderful news for you. You can leave here today with that relationship. You can confess your sin to Jesus as best you know how, repent of your sin, and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. There are some in this room who have not done that, maybe. And I would just ask you, would you consider doing that today? Why not? I can give you plenty of reasons you should. I don't think you can give me one reason that you shouldn't. If you can, after service, come to me. It'll be the first time I've heard a good reason in 30 years of doing this. So if you've never made that decision in your life, would you consider that decision today? 
And for those of us who've made that commitment, we've made that decision, whether it was a week ago, a year ago, or 10 years ago, or 30 years ago. Are you embodying what the Bible defines as a Christian? Are you practicing what Jesus practiced? Are you asking God to position you where he wants you in his kingdom? To not be in his way, but to move where he calls you to go. Are you pursuing Jesus? Would you bow with me? I'm going to pray, and after I pray, we're going to stand and sing. And this is our invitation time, if our time of commitment. If you have questions about what it means to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, we'll be glad to help you walk through that and get those questions answered. If you have questions about what it means to make that commitment, we want to help you make that commitment. You, you just come grab me, come find Dr. Jackson. We'll get you here an invitation after the service. We'll make sure that you are able to take your next step and your journey with God. And I would also challenge those of us who've made that commitment to Jesus already. Would we also renew our commitment today to ask the Lord to make us true Christians who mimic and follow our Savior. Father, I thank you that Jesus did for me what I could never do for myself. That he lived the life I could never live and died the death I should have died. That he pursued me before I ever realized I needed to pursue him. God, I pray that in this time of commitment, you would have your will and your way in our lives. Whatever you're calling us to do, may we simply say yes. In Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. Let's stand. Amen.